Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry P. Arne joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. Also at the Hillsdale College Podcast Network, check out the radio-free Hillsdale Hour, the Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast, the Larry P. Arn Show, and more, all at podcast.hillsdale.edu. Bonjour, hi, Canada. This means the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway, the last radio hour of the week. This week, we asked back. We had so much fun with Dean Matt Spaulding, who helms the Kirby Center-based Center uh, graduate program on statesmanship, to come back after we had a display of, well, I won't call it statesmanship on Wednesday night. But I wanted to ask Dr. Spaulding who's a little under the weather, and I appreciate your getting up, a general reaction to the debate on Wednesday night, uh, Dean Spaulding. Oh, well, good morning, Hugh. It's good to be with you. Sorry about the, the voice. I, you know, I, I, uh, I have to say I was pretty generally disappointed with the whole thing. A lot of talking over each other, wasn't well managed. Not much of issues came out at all, unfortunately. Uh, I'd like to see some good, serious debate between some of these candidates, but we didn't have it today. On Wednesday night. Why do you think that is? Is it because the moderators are trying to get you know, five quarts into a single gallon in terms of questions? Is it because of the right of reply? Is it because of, of silliness on the part of the candidates? To what do you put this problem? Because it was a mess. Well, it was a mess. I, I think it was all of the above. I mean, you had too many candidates, which meant no one candidate or, or, or the candidates didn't address all the questions. So you didn't get a real range of their opinions. Uh, the questions weren't that good. Uh, there's very odd questions. And then you'd get into some issue with one candidate and you'd go on to something else. And then a lot of arguing back and forth, uh, you know, arguing about drapes in the State Department. I, I didn't see that as a debate at all, really. It was, it was sound bites. A few of them tried to step out of that, but it really didn't work. Unfortunately, it was completely dominated by who was not there, and that doesn't really change the dynamic of the of the debate, it seems to me. Yeah, I, I was struck by the lack of a question of why would you be a better commander in chief than Donald Trump? Or why are you more electable than Donald Trump? These are obvious questions that right. Republican voting audiences would like to hear answered. How hard is it to come up with specific questions about Republican uh, of interest to Republican and independents who might vote in Republican primaries? How hard is it to come up with those questions? No, and, and there were a few, a few, a few uh, knocks on him not being there. But for instance, no question came up about the current budget issues on the, on on Congress. There was a very light education discussion, which I didn't find very uh, illuminating. Foreign policy a little bit better, but I didn't learn much from it. It was uh, nothing new, really, nothing serious of any substance. So I, I and I. I, I think this format just prevented anyone from, from coming out. I think DeSantis did a generally good job. He had some very good answers. Uh, actually, Tim Scott had some good answers here and there, as did uh, many of them. But There, but there are no trap doors, though, them. and there ought to be a trap door for people to interrupt. Crosstalk is the bane of communication. 
Do you ever talk at the same time as another professor ever? I, I sure try not to. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, there, was a, there was a few moments there when three or four people were talking simultaneously <clears throat> for what, what seemed to be a, a minute or so. And it was just embarrassing. It looked terrible. It looked very small and petty. And then most of the crosstalk was about unimportant things in most cases. All right. Before I go to bigger topics and move on from the debate, I want to ask you about how to approach the division in the Republican Party of Ukraine. People can either ask the question, should we send more aid to Ukraine? Or they can ask, what types of aid should we send to Ukraine? Or they could ask what I think is a good question. What is the end result you will pursue if you are president in Ukraine? No, I, I, I agree. This is why I thought the Ukraine discussion at the debate was was uh, very dis- disappointing. On one hand, you saw a a division between the argument about how we can't have an endless war, no blank checks. But on the other hand, you hear the argument that it's good that we're going back against uh, uh, breaking down uh, you know, Russian the military. Uh, it's not our troops over there. We're spending. Uh, it's very cost efficient. Having said that, there was no conversation between about a, what a reasonable position would be having to do with tactics and strategy and what's the end game. No one actually wants to have that conversation, I think, because it divides divides Republicans, but also I think is, is unclear in their minds as to what we should be doing. Yeah, until you obtain the purpose for which any intervention would serve, it's hard to talk about what the intervention should be. And to me, this is the biggest problem again and again. One-minute answers don't allow for people to explain what ought to be the end game that we're searching for and how best to contribute to it. So I think my first improvement would be to give them 75 seconds or 90 seconds an answer and trap door people. I mean, just pass over them. You're not getting a question if you interrupt or talk over somebody because it just so annoys me. I, I, I agree. I mean, several people shouldn't have been there in the first place, <clears throat> let's, let's face it. But if you, if you want to have this, if the objective of a debate is to call through serious candidates trying to develop them as potential alternatives, you've got to have some sort of reasonable way to, to, to assess this out. I don't think there's ever a moment here where we, are, we got that opportunity, given the setup, given the number of people, and given them talking over each other. It did not make them look anywhere near presidential, in my opinion. All right. Let me talk to you about education. That came up briefly. Uh, I do not believe it was answered effectively, which is to condition the receipt of any federal aid by a high school or an elementary school on standards and approaches to a variety of things. How would you have wanted them to answer the education question, Matt Spalding, about, you know, it's not a a federal function. It's a state and local function. But there are things the federal government can do to, to end the craziness. No, I, I, I agree. It was, a, it was a disappointing conversation. That, um, uh, Nikki Haley talked about literacy a bit, which was fine. I thought uh, uh, Ron DeSantis actually gave a good, straightforward answer in terms of looking at the Florida model and the substance of it. But what was, what was missing, and this was a general thing missing in much of the debate, was a substantive understanding of the nature of the problem relative to what should be done about it. You, you hit on part of the thing. This came up separately and on, on other issues, which I think is also f- uh, fumbled, about how the structure of the government operates, executive legislature, but also federal state. Federal state is, is precisely where education is most important as an issue, 
what's the role of the federal government, what is the role of the state governments. We shouldn't be confusing those. The Florida model points exactly towards multiplying state models relative to the federal government, but that wasn't discussed, really wasn't discussed at all. I, I would have been interested to hear them make a, a more particular argument about what exactly should the federal government doing, what should it not be doing. There are lots of questions in, in regulations having to do with civil rights, the question of uh, student loans, which is a major part of the Department of Education, the uh, accreditation. There are questions you could discuss about how to break up the monopoly the federal government has over higher education. Um, those aren't sexy issues, but if education is an issue, that's the one way to, to get into that uh, from the point of view of the federal government. Now, uh, last question on debate, Dean Spaulding. Abortion has come up in the first two debates. All of the Republican candidates and former President Trump applaud the Dobbs decision. It is my belief that abortion questions are delivered by legacy media or driven by polling that is not aimed at a Republican electorate, about which there are only hypotheticals other than do you approve or disapprove of Dobbs, and we all know they approve of Dobbs. Should there be any more abortion questions, in your view, in Republican debates? I, I, I think there should be uh, more questions. The point is, how do you talk about it? Again, this is a similar question to how they didn't answer education very well, in my opinion. But you have to make a distinction between the, 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 the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe, was a Supreme Court decision. But then you have the division between the federal government and the state governments. The problem is the legacy media is talking about it as one national uh, issue across all lines what's actually going on, which explains why there's a division between President Trump and, and Governor DeSantis over the Florida bill, is a Florida has taken a particular uh, route uh, in, in terms of timing. They should explain how that operates, because now it's become a debate which I think actually gives the, uh, the, the, the pro-choice position a certain advantage in debating it, because Republicans, conservatives, have not enough time explaining what happens in a post-Dobbs world in a way that the electorate can understand. I, I couldn't agree with you more, but it, the format of a minute does not really allow. Not allow I think it. the argument can be framed. Should the federal government preempt state law? Should the federal legislative and executive process preempt state law on abortion? That's the only question that matters. And it's never asked that way. I'll be right back with Dean Matt Spaulding. Everything Hillsdale is at hillsdale.edu, including all of these Hillsdale dialogues dating back a decade. Rarely do we do current events like this, but today we are. Dean Spaulding will be right back. We're both at the end of the week. We're both running out of voice because we both have allergies in the beltway. Stay tuned. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E.
hillsdale.edu slash new course. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt talking with Dean Matt Spaulding of the Hillsdale Graduate School on Statesmanship. All things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Dean Spaulding, I want to go back to get an update from you on New College. You remember the Board of Directors on New College. This will lead to our next question, our next segment about tenure. But can you give us a status update on what Governor DeSantis did and what what has happened at New College and how the students have responded at New College? You are now a member of the Board of New College. Uh, Sure. So um, New College of Florida is the smallest of the state university system schools in Florida, uh, based in Sarasota. And the governor appointed a majority this last December and starting in January. And we have been kind of step-by-step going through and trying, in my opinion, cleaning out the underbrush so that we can revive and restore the school. It was originally founded as a liberal arts school. It's currently the Liberal Arts Honors College of Florida. Uh, It was based on non-discrimination founded by congregationalists. So we got rid of DEI at the beginning after getting replacing the president and the provost and other officers. This last meeting, we abolished tenure as a department, excuse me, abolished uh, gender studies as a department uh, on the grounds that it's not really a science and not part of the liberal arts. So we're now turning to a rebuilding phase uh, with um, adding more tenure. A good number of tenure, excuse me, a good, good number of faculty did not come back, which actually gives us a lot of openings. Student numbers coming in are actually very strong. Among other things, we added and brought back sports, which had been which had been abolished in the past. Uh, so it's a um, it's a transition. It's a it's a move to kind of restore a public university to uh, a semblance of a balanced uh, liberal arts education with all the various components that would be involved in that. And we, we've got to go through all the different pieces. So now we'll turn to uh, curriculum here over the course of this next year to now, um, align that how, better with its original curriculum. How many members of the board are there on New College, Dean Spaulding? I believe there are 15. And when you meet, would you describe for me the average meeting of the board? Because I've been to a lot of board meetings, state, local, federal level. I've been to a lot of faculty meetings. They are rarely productive of anything except the statement of existing point of views, which do not change. What are the new college board meetings like? Well, part part of that is that the state of Florida, uh, to its credit, uh, has extensive sunshine laws, which means all of our meetings, everything we do has to be in public, uh, has to be recorded, has, and the public has to be able to comment on it. So... In that situation, it's actually very hard to deliberate. This is an example, in my opinion, of good government measures, which are preventing the precise kind of thinking we ought to do to deliberate about what to do with this school, uh, the tampering that. So as a result, all the conversations tend to be just statements back and forth and not a an actual deliberative conversation, unfortunately. And when we go into the meetings now, the other thing, which I think I've, I can't remember if I've mentioned to you this before, is that it's a requirement at the public meetings that the public uh, can say whatever they want at the meetings, which is a great thing. But we'll spend the first hour, sometimes hour and a half, hearing public comment, all of which is overwhelmingly negative, critical, and 
in the same way, not actually contributing to the conversation at all, sometimes quite quite profane in terms of what we're doing. So the Can't you put that at the back of the agenda? Um, we've 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 tried to to put it move it around in ways that could um, uh, you know, help us with the conversation, but it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, you know, you know uh, Dean Spalding from 1983 until 2016, I was a member of one or another public body, and I was subject to all the Brown Act rules from 1989 to 2016, where you can't do serial meetings, you've got to do everything with notice and comment, you got to provide for right. that. Right. And we found ways to actually work in the public view by pushing comments, you, you know, you, you let 20 minutes of comments at the front and then you put the rest at the back and you make the agenda items wide open and, and swing for the fences kind of agenda items. Are you getting there? Are you figuring out how to do that? We, we've started doing that uh, with the agenda items. <clears throat> We're having broader conversations. Unfortunately, I think what's happening here is that we have a strong majority with a uh, faculty opposition and usually a student opposition and maybe one other board member in opposition. And the problem is that, as you might expect with a lot of the issues we're facing there, a lot of these questions are extremely politicized. So it's hard to operate as a board of a college thinking through curriculum questions when what is happening, this is why education, I think, is the is really the political cultural question of the day is that this is all involved in in ideas in in, in curriculum in disciplines um, in a way that it wasn't in the past so you, you're really not having a debate with old liberals with whom you can have a rational conversation about curriculum it's more of a, yeah it uh, is it is a combination of ideology plus chlorosis plus paralysis by public uh transparency laws all intended to be good and and all of which have combined for absolute sclerosis in higher education we come back we're going to talk about tenure and when it should exist if ever in any institution i'm becoming more and more radical about this stay tuned america i'll be back all things hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu stand by back america dean matt spaulding is my guest on this week's hillsdale dialogue all things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu, including amazing online courses, the opportunity to sign up for free for the old snail mail version of Imprimus, which is a uh, monthly speech digest, which many of you have been getting for years and reading for years, and it remains absolutely essential reading. And then beyond that are the applications you need to apply to Hillsdale, and you'd better start early because they're going to be overwhelmed this year as Hillsdale continues to be the, uh, the Lantern of the North, and indeed of American higher education. Matt Spaulding, I want to talk to you about tenure. Now, I myself enjoy the benefits of tenure, and I do so on a law school faculty which is overwhelmingly ideologically to the left. So I, I value it because I don't worry about what I writers say in the Washington Post or in a faculty meeting. But I do believe generally tenure has gotten way out of hand, and it was never intended for primary and secondary schools. I don't even think it works anymore at the university level because it encourages bad teaching and stupid ideology. What do you think about tenure? <laughs> I, 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 I think I'm kind of going down the same path as you are, but let's think about it for a moment. I think your, your point about primary and secondary is absolutely correct. The, the higher education system and the, and the primary secondary education system are very different. So I don't even think it's a question there. In higher education, 
again, we oftentimes look at these particular questions and wonder, uh, and we look at them right now and where they are. I think right now tenure has got well out of hand. The question is whether tenure in theory could, could exist as it was intended to exist in a properly structured higher education system. And I, and I think there, your own answer suggests a certain modulated answer to that, which is that tenure serves a purpose, both in terms of protecting one's free speech as a professor, being able to write and say what they think, but also not worry about uh, uh, the pressures of annual contracts such that they can look and do long-term uh, writing and research. That's not an absurd notion under, within this odd, strange market called the, the academy. The problem is it's got out of, out of hand. So I think my initial position right now is to develop hybrid models, which is to say that as we go through this, there are different things you can do. So, for instance, one, uh, you can review tenure much more often, and you can have more standards for reviewing tenure, so it's not out of hand. Uh, you can also take longer to grant it. Uh, there, there are different ways you could do it. But the problem with tenure we're talking about here is, in many ways, not the problem of tenure per se. It's the problem of the overarching structure of higher education and in, in, in how tenure feeds into that. The problem in most universities, virtually all universities for that matter, is that the faculty thinks they run the place. And so they're dictating what the, what the university should do they're changing and controlling curriculum. They're changing what goes on in the classroom, and so they're imposing an ideological litmus test as they go. What we need are stronger boards, stronger presidents, stronger structures of an institution that keeps all of that in control and reined in, such that tenure could exist in that environment. So, I'm- yeah, uh, Dean Spalding. Tenure doesn't exist for any small business owner. It does not exist except by contract for any broadcaster. It never exists for a lawyer vis-a-vis a a client. You don't have a tenure client. They can leave tomorrow. Tenure is alien to any kind of market system. I'm not going to say capitalism. Uh, It's just alien to anything that is based on competition. What do we do about this? Should a president take a stand on this? Because it's destroying schools. That's why I think the initial move is to restructure it so that it it has components which uh, which mirror those those other markets. You you test it more frequently. You have more checks on it. But let's say you had a hybrid system where your tenure is essentially a five year contract uh, and it's a rolling contract and you review it. That still would not change anything if the departments are controlled by. Uh, ideological opinions, and if those departments dominate the provost's office and prevent the president from uh, continuing these investigations, you actually need to strengthen and have strong presidents, strong boards, strong provosts who want to drive a, a, an understanding of the curriculum in the university such that the professors work for that. You give them broad freedoms, broad freedoms to teach their subject matters, to write. That's all fine. We should give them added protections for that, given the nature of the academy being different than the rural market. Having said that, it can't be absolute in the way that it has become today, because that just destroys the academy itself, because then they are ruling 
the academy and the, the institution and its mission and purposes are not running the place. Now, my pet solution for this is a five-year contract with a binding decision on whether or not it will be renewed after three years for a period of three years, meaning that confidentially, the appointing and reviewing board will tell a professor, an assistant professor, an associate professor, you're going to get another, you've got to make a decision, yay or nay, on the next three years after two more years, so that they have two years to find a new home or a new job. A one-year deal is not enough in academia. You know that, I know that. But two years is. And if it's kept confident, they can get to the market and do so without people realizing they've been given their papers. What do you make of that idea? Uh, I think generally something in that range is what I would call a a hybrid solution to push towards. And keep in mind what we're doing here. What is the objective? You're trying to open up and break down the monopoly in higher education in these universities, and I think this is a key component of, of, of doing that. If you add to that all the other elements which are preventing the higher education system from responding, the, the, kind of the cement of, of accreditation processes, the amounts of money that drive up tuition because it's coming from the, from the federal government, uh, the lack of, of schools focusing on uh, serious curriculum questions and, and designing curriculum for their students, and just following the fads of the day, I think that is a component of it. To, 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 but somehow the, the tectonic plates of the higher education system have to be shifted. And I going after tenure is one uh, key component of that. So uh, would you think it's an appropriate question for a presidential debate to talk about tenure? Or is that too complicated, too in the weeds? I, I think that's too complicated and too, in, too into the weeds. But I, but I think it, it would be a question, uh, alluding back to our earlier conversation about if you're, you know, you can make it, I think the, the public mind makes a general distinction between K-12 education, higher education. What are the ways, uh, what things would you do as a president to, to disrupt, if you will, the monopoly situation in higher education? Um, and, and think about it as an institution and as a structure that needs to be addressed. The problem now is we just look at it as it's another, it's another market of the, or it's another aspect of the federal government and we're just talking about of money as opposed to how it actually operates and how it operates to, to serve its, its, its purposes. Tenure is a, is a component of that. I don't know that it, 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 it rises to the level of being a nationally debated issue, but having said that, you'll recall various uh, examples of this in past years, egregious cases where professors say outlandish things and they are denied tenure or, or their tenure is reviewed and they're removed, those do make national news uh, for good for good reason to, to point out to, to point towards the, the problems in the system. Yeah, when a professor loses ten years, it's a uh, man bites dog story, and it's it's just astonishing to me where we found ourselves after uh, a century of progressive education politics. Let me switch back, if I can, to uh, the debate and Ukraine, Dean Spalding, China and and Russia and. Iran are an axis of evil. Does it make any sense to discuss that on a debate stage when there is so much nuance to how one deals with any one of them, much less all three? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I think you're correct, but going back to the debate, that's, um, I was, my, my disappointment with the debate on foreign policy, one of the actual 
points, which I think was made, and to his credit from uh, Governor Christie, was precisely on that. And I thought he was actually quite articulate about the relationship between uh, China and Iran and, and this axis. Um, um, so I, I think that is, that, that is exactly correct. Um, what, we, what we're not seeing, I, I think the disjunct here is between thinking through strategically about the threats we face and what that means and what the relationship is between that and our thinking about current foreign policy questions. I thought the Ukraine discussion was kind of extremes on each side, but no actual conversation of that relative to precisely the threat you brought up here and that Chris Christie did bring up the debate. What's the connection between those things? If that's the real axis of evil that we face that's operating, how should we think about that? We've, we've kind of, we, we don't think anymore at least our our public leaders don't seem to be thinking, at least that debate does not allow them to be shown to be thinking in a way that's kind of a prudential, strategic way of understanding an objective, an end, a threat in a higher sense, and then thinking through the stages and steps and strategy and tactics to, uh, to get there. And that was true whether it was foreign policy or education or whatever it, whatever it might be. We, we think too much in sound bites. We think too much in making debate points, and that structure of that debate just lent itself to that. I would much rather see a substantive debate between some number, some small number of these candidates on these issues, and I would like to see how they think them through, how they connect the dots, how they uh, think on their feet about these important questions. When we come back, we're going to talk about the shutdown, the Seinfeld shutdown, which is about nothing like the show. And it's coming up. Well, as Dean Spaulding, what do you think about that? The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in the Exodus story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash new course. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E, hillsdale.edu slash new course. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dean Matt Spaulding, uh, breaking news during the break. Senator Dianne Feinstein has passed away. As a longtime Californian, I had a lot of respect for her when she acted in the nation's defense. She has been ill for quite some time. I'm curious your reaction to her passing and what you think. Gavin Newsom will punt, but what do you think he ought to do? Should he pick between the candidates who are running or should he punt? I'm sure he's been thinking about this for a while. I'm sure they've known about it coming. But having said that, he'll, he'll think in terms of how does this affect his political career, I'm sure. Yeah, I, but, I uh, know that Barbara really Lee was hoping to be appointed because he has promised to appoint an African-American to that seat. But, of course, you've got Adam Schiff and Katie Porter running, 
and Dianne Feinstein had a very distinguished career, but they can't operate with 49 senators. No, they can't. He used to, act, he used to move quickly. And, he, and she, you know, that's a, a vote, but that's also a vote on the, she still on the Judiciary Committee, so they can't advance anything there either. Oh, you're right. Uh, although Chuck uh, Schumer can name someone to the Judiciary Committee in her I guess absence. He could. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So um, in terms of recalling her career, I will simply remember when George Moscone was assassinated, she stepped up. She was great. And ever since then, she'd been a sort of center-left Democrat. Are there any more Dianne Feinstein old-school Democrats left? Um, not not very many. I mean, you, you would, um, I mean, for, first of all, note that, you know, when she stepped to Ms. Moscone, I mean, what year was that, Hugh? That was a while ago. And, uh, you know, this, this trend of the Democratic Party has been going on underneath our feet for a while, and I think it's harder to see. I mean, um, I think there are other Dianne Feinsteins out there here and there, but they're few and far between, and they're increasingly not getting into these positions. And when they do, uh, their own party is pushing against them. I mean, yeah, it would we, be it, it'll be fascinating to see who Gavin comes up with. I do want to close by the Seinfeld shutdown. Uh, the budget process has surprised not worked again. We're going to have a shutdown because of four members of the House Republican caucus, which I call the knucklehead sub caucus. What do you think about this theater, Matt Spaulding? Uh, well, I think you're right. It, it, it's theater. Um, but let's step back for a moment. And, and what is this theater about? Um, so setting aside those particular members for a moment, but the larger question here, the problem is the House of Representatives for some time now has essentially been not exercising its most powerful uh, tools, which is the control over the budget. And we've gotten into this position where you have very narrow majorities in the House, a very small number of members can do this. Um so on the one hand, it's ridiculous because the House is a majoritarian body, and you figure it out, and you work, move forward. But having said that, I have to there, and I'm thinking here broadly about the conservative position, not necessarily these four members, but the, the, the general argument that we no longer follow regular order, we no longer do budgets the normal way, we, we slip everything into continuing resolutions, they're absolutely right about that. That is, an, that is an ingredient for not only bad budgeting, but for a Congress which is giving away its most important power um, in controlling the budget. This, is, this, is a, this, is a, this theater we're watching here is really a symptom of a problem, not necessarily the problem itself, because we're seeing politics, in my opinion, being poorly managed in this situation, but they're trying to do it for what are these larger questions, which I think there is general agreement, but you, you've got to figure out how to continue operating. But how do you then revive congressional power in, 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 in the sense that it becomes a, an actual uh, branch of government vis-a-vis the executive? That's the bigger problem here. That's the larger question. That's why I think more members uh, my personal opinion is that Speaker McCarthy is the most talented speaker we've had in 25 years. However, We've also changed the dynamic of politics where viral moments create fundraising and email opportunities and publicity. I do not know how to uncouple that. I don't think it's possible, Dean Spaulding. I think we're stuck with this system. I, I, I think your point about viral, there's a certain parallel here with the debates we just watched, right? I mean, these, these, these viral moments uh, in terms of identifying you know, a single 
single popular candidates for rate fundraising is a, is a real problem in our in our in our politics. But the point here, what what has to, I don't know that I see the path right now. I don't know that it's clear. But what we have to do, and I think McCarthy is doing a very good job of, of, of navigating this, is how do you get back to some semblance of the rule of law and the structure by which Congress actually plays a check against the executive uh, within government? If you can't do that, what good does Congress serve in the first place? It's got to have some sort of uh, structural uh, purpose. And this is preventing that from, I think, but from from coming out in a way that is necessary to revive constitutional government. Four years out of 40 years, we've had a budget. Four. It's it's remarkable dysfunction. Dean Matt Spaulding of Hillsdale, all things Hillsdale, including every Hillsdale dialogue. We rarely do a current events on live radio like we did, but the debate did spark that. I appreciate Dean Spaulding joining me. Everything Hillsdale, including the audio courses, the video courses, in Primus for free, and the application to attend, all of it, at hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Harley. Thank you, Generalissimo. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Talk to you Monday. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.